Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Why does making friends as an adult feel so What hard? should I wear on a first date? What the date? hell is a form of But that Why is was not good. So what do I want my life to look like in five years? We, we want to know, know too. Since 2012, the Every Girl has been an online destination to help women around the world achieve the life of their dreams. Now, we're excited to bring you the same inspiring content with the Every Girl Podcast. Welcome back to the show, everybody. This episode is a fun one, and we are getting rather steamy on this Tuesday. Dr. Holly Richmond is one of North America's leading sex therapists, counseling a wide range of clients, including Hollywood's elite. And she is author of the book, Reclaiming Pleasure, a sex positive guide for moving past sexual trauma and living a passionate life. She has been featured in major publications such as the New York Times, Cosmopolitan, and CNN. So in this episode, we go there. We are talking about all things female pleasure from how to orgasm and increase your libido to how to talk to your partner about sex and improve your sex life, whether you're in a relationship or single. Dr. Holly has the best tips. Okay. I went way off script for this interview because I was just dying to ask her about her opinion on porn. And we even talk about how sex is portrayed in the media. She shares her thoughts on that scene. And don't worry, darling, I know you know what scene I'm talking about. So overall, this is a really amazing episode. This is the one you might want to play when your significant other is in hearing distance. Maybe you turn it up a little bit. We are all about getting a little more spicy. It's really awesome. Mom, if you're listening, maybe maybe skip this episode. Everybody else, you are going to love it. It's such an empowering conversation. Welcome Dr. Holly Richmond to the Every Girl Podcast. Thank you again so much for joining me. And I love your top too, by the way. That's very cute. Thank you. This is an oldie, but a goodie. One of those I'm like, oh yeah. I love those those shirts that you just like can't get rid of because you're like, it just, it's still good. It's an oldie, but a goodie. Yep. And it's a camisole. So I don't have to wear a bra with it, which I don't know about you, but anything where I'm like, I don't have to put a bra on, I'm all about it. Oh my God. That's the best. Literally. Yeah. When you do, when you can be free, I love it. (laughs) Well, I am with Dr. Holly Richmond today. Holly, thank you so much for joining us. Like I was saying to you off air, I am so selfishly excited for this conversation. I feel like I said that all the time, but this I think is going to be such a fascinating conversation that more people need to have. And I'm excited for our audience to get to hear what you do and all of your insight. Oh my gosh, Josie. Thank you so much for having me. I've been looking forward to this since you and your team reached out. So I'm just grateful to be here. Thank you. Okay. Well, let's dive right into it um, because we have a lot to cover here. So there's so much shame and discomfort about sex. First of all, I know a lot of people that are even maybe listening to this are listening to it in a way that they almost feel uncomfortable discussing sex 
I know even like a lot of women feel weird going to their doctor to talk about sex. So do you find that in your practice, women especially feel a lot of shame or discomfort on the subject of sex? And why do you think that that is? So the answer to the first question is yes, absolutely. It's just, it's amazing that it's 2023 and we're still having trouble talking about our sexuality. So in my work, I talk about this idea that self and sex aren't dualistic. So sexuality is a part of ourselves, but I think most of us have been raised to really externalize it, deprioritize it. Well, that's a bonus. Don't worry about it. And certainly don't talk about it because we don't have the framework, especially in our country for sex education. Again, I, you know, we get one or two classes in maybe middle school or high school. And then I think the school thinks parents are taking care of it. And parents are like, well, my kids' friends will take care of it. So it just doesn't get talked about or it doesn't get talked about in a sex positive way. That's so true. Yeah. Cause it, it's like, I'm trying to think of my sex education and it was like, the sperm and the egg. And I remember seeing a video of like a boy masturbating and being like, oh, that's something boys do. And, and, but that was the extent of my sex education. Like, I, I don't think that there was anything else. So you're so right that it, it starts with the education of how we're talking to children about it and the, how we like begin to learn it and form those memories. Cause I'm sure that's probably really important. Like what you learn about sex, even like any memories or thoughts or impressions as a child, does that really carry into adulthood and the way you view sexuality as an adult? Oh my gosh, absolutely. Those first sexual experience have such power. And I say that I had hesitated a little bit there because there are certainly, I work with a lot of people whose first sexual experience was not consensual. So I want to say they do carry a lot of power and we do have a chance to rewrite those stories. But Josie, what you're pointing to, like the missing word in almost all sex education is pleasure, mm, right? We get the anatomy, yes. we get procreation, we get what not to do interesting that you saw a video of a boy masturbating. I'm sure you didn't see one of a girl. So we really just girls, women are not told that we're supposed to like it, which is the irony there. The clitoris is literally the only organ in the human body that's designed exclusively for pleasure. That is its job. End of story. It's not for reproduction. Wow. And I definitely didn't learn about the clitoris in school. Like I really did it, which is wild. That's sex education. That's what it is, is that's a part of our bodies and we're wired for pleasure and we're not taught that, which is crazy to me. Love the first thing that you said that we've thought of like that sex, you know, is this almost kind of like separate thing? Like it's a bonus. It's a, you know, part of relationships. And it wasn't like for me, everything changed when I learned and thought of sex and pleasure as part of self-care and like a key piece of wellness. And you know, I, I started learning about how libido is a vital sign, you know, like a healthy libido means a healthy body. Like it's not this, you know, dirty thing that you do in relationships and, you know, just do it for the purpose of connecting with people romantically, which is a lovely bonus to sexuality and pleasure, but that it's, it's actually part of our wellness and like our, the way that we care for ourselves and for our bodies. So I just think that it's so interesting that it's become almost like, like our culture has demonized it in this way. How do you help people reprogram when they start to realize that they have only viewed sex through this lens of this 
maybe demonized or just in terms of relationships or how they relate to other people and help them program into understanding it as they're, again, like a vital sign to their body. Like it's an important part of self-care. How do you help people reprogram? Yeah. I love your language there, a vital sign. Um, And I'm just going to add one more word there for listeners. So this vital sign, um, I describe that as eros. So E-R-O-S or eroticism. And we typically think about eroticism as sexual, but the definition of eroticism is literally life force, vitality, vivacity. It's what gets us going. Wow. So it can be sexual, but it really starts way before that with our overall health, with how we move through the world, with how we view ourselves. That is so amazing. I've never thought of that. It's actually just like the life force within us. Like that's so powerful. And it's even like on kind of maybe a more spiritual level, but it's, it's like quite literally life force because that's also how you know, that's how life happens is like, it's through, it's through pleasure. It's through sex. That's how a baby is literally made. So it's, that's like so powerful that it's also your own individual life force. And like to think of it that way, but on a greater scale, it is like the life force of the world. Like that's kind of mind blowing. Like that's so, so cool. I'm curious, like talking about kind of like this, the shame and discomfort, especially when it comes to to women and, and women's experience with sexuality. I'm curious your thoughts on like how much body image plays into this, because that's another like huge factor in our culture that's constantly being shoved down our throats is this idea of your body's not right or not perfect. And there's a perfect body and all of these things. How much does body image really play into sexuality? It is. It really is. And it's interesting too, when I'm working with sexuality concerns, specifically with women, I'm almost always working with disordered eating or some level of body dysmorphia or exercise compulsivity. There's some element of externalized control that's impacting the body and then they think impacts sexuality. And it does impact it, not because their body isn't good enough, not because they don't smell good, not because they don't taste right, which is what I hear women say, but because they can't be present. And it's really hard to take in pleasure if we aren't present. If we're thinking about, is my partner comparing me to someone he sees in the movies? Is my partner comparing me to someone they see in porn or that she was with before? Most often, and I have checked this out with couples for years and years, most often people are just so happy to be in bed with another naked person. Nobody's comparing anybody, right? They're just celebrating your body. So if, if I could just, my bit of advice there, your body is beautiful. Let it be there. Let it do the things that it somewhat naturally knows how to do. Don't worry about those external factors. Focus on the connection first. So you're going to connect with yourself. Josie, I don't know if we're going to get to the self-pleasure protocol, but I prescribe that for everyone I talk with and then the connection with your partner. Interesting. Okay. Speak on that while you're on that. Like, Tell us about that protocol and why and what that looks like. Yeah. So people come to me and they often will say things like, I've lost my mojo. I don't care if I ever have sex again, not interested in it. So really I'm going to look at first what's going on in their life. So are they sleeping? Are they eating well? Are they getting some movement in their day? What's happening with a mindfulness or spirituality practice? But then I'm not going to go immediately to their partner. If they are partnered, I'm going to have them once or twice a week, 
for 20 to 30 minutes, really create a self-pleasure ritual. So in the bath, in the shower, in their bed, on the couch, wherever they feel like they can be private and sensual or bring in elements that really get them going. And we're going to start with non-genital touch. So it's going to be some version of self-touch of the arms, the head, rubbing their hair, maybe their belly, their legs, and then Week by week, we add in different elements of digital touch. So using our hands and then maybe using a toy. And then at some point, we might bring in a partner if that's an option, but really getting them in touch with their body, comfortable touching themselves. If they've been struggling to have orgasms, we might work on that if that's something that they want to do. Again, so they're just learning, just like with exercise, I have to give myself at least twice a week to really take care of this, my whole sexual erotic being. That's so interesting that you start with just you alone. I hear a lot of people, and I'm sure you obviously like that's what you work with all day, every day, are people that are like, I don't feel sex drive in my relationship. And we actually got a ton of questions I'm going to ask you later, all having to do with, I don't feel a high sex drive with my relationship. And it's like, the goal is to have more sex in the relationship. But I love that the idea of like, okay, we want to get there in the relationship, but it has to start with you alone and knowing your body. I think that's so powerful. Is the point of that and kind of like the end goal of it to feel more rooted in your body? And again, kind of going back to that body image piece to like have this comfortability with yourself or like what is the the end goal for people that are like, well, I'll just skip over that and go straight to the relationship stuff. Right, right. So that's, it's more comfortability. It's more acceptance. And a, a little mantra that many sex therapists use is it helps you get out of your head and into your body. When we're using touch and sensation, if we just keep bringing ourselves back to how it feels, that can be so powerful to take us out of those stories of I'm not enough, I'm to this, I'm not enough that, but my boobs, but my butt, all of those things that, that we do to ourselves when we're in bed alone with someone else that just, it totally takes us out of that moment of pleasure. And um, obviously, hopefully, you know, right now I'm a huge proponent of pleasure. We all deserve it. I love that. Yes. It's our like, right. I feel like it's not just like birthright, our birthright. I love that. I love that. It's so, so true. What other tips do you have for people like, okay, so they're doing the kind of solo practice, which is amazing. And then they're still going into the bedroom with someone whether it's a long-term partner, whether it's someone new, and all they can think about is my thighs probably don't look good. My stomach's hanging out. Oh my gosh, my arms look big. Like all of the things that a lot of women and a lot of people are telling themselves during such an intimate experience. What are some tips that you have to, again, like be able to kind of get out of your head and get back into the present so that the body image doesn't have to play as big of a part as I think it does for a lot of women? Yeah. I think I'm going to take this opportunity to go a little bit more relational because yes, we want all women to be able to empower ourselves and we are all relational social creatures to some extent. And if we are in a relationship, there's always a healthy degree of codependence. We hear this word codependence and we want to villainize it. If we are in a relationship with someone, there's a healthy degree of codependence because that's what a relationship is. If not, I would be in my lane over here. You'd be in your lane over here. That's not a relationship. That's like two roommates living together who never see each other. That's not healthy. Okay. So I have three principles for healthy relationship that I think we can translate into this question that you asked. The first one is to give active appreciations daily. 
So here's what I'm thinking. If the partner who is having trouble eroticizing herself is gives her partner an appreciation daily, oh my gosh, you look so good in those pants. I love that dress on you. Your ass looks great. Oh my gosh, you look so sexy today. Or thank you so much for taking the time to make my coffee this morning. The acts of service, whatever those active appreciations are, the partner will probably start doing it back because of mirror neurons, because we want to model each other. So actively appreciating each other. Or if you have great communication with your partner, say, hey, I think we're slacking on appreciating each other daily. I'm going to start putting an effort into it. And you're going to hear me at least once or twice a day say thank you for something. The second thing partners do is they give each other the benefit of the doubt. So most of the time when there's a miscommunication in a relationship or an argument, it's about misattunement, not malice. We don't come into the room and try to irritate our partners. It's about misattunement. So really, how can you and your partner be back on the same page? What does that look like for you? Is it dinner every night without devices? Is it a check-in every morning? Is it coffee together? Is it a walk around the block? So really finding areas of attunement, which I know 100% will translate to the bedroom. And the third thing healthy couples do is they talk about sex. And this is a great segue into, hey, I'm curious, what do you think of our sex life? And when you're asking from a place of curiosity, it's hard for your partner to be defensive. There's not a lot of defense there because you're not saying, hey, I think our sex life sucks. What are you going to do about it? It's like, how do you think our sex life is? And if they're a good partner, they're going to give you a gentle but authentic answer. And then they're going to ask you the same thing. And there's your chance to say, gosh, I'm struggling with myself. I wish I wanted to have sex more. I miss connecting with you. Then you can get into, I'd like to try this together. Or do you remember when we first got together and we had sex in the car? What do you think about doing that again? Whatever comes up. I love those tips so much for so many reasons, but, but the kind of the main takeaway I had from listening to those is that anything that you want to change can come from you. Like you can be the one to change it. And I think that's so empowering because especially in relationships, it's so easy to get into, you know, oh, they don't do this enough or they don't compliment me or they don't want to have these conversations. Like it's so easy to kind of go into the blame game of what they don't do. So it's so powerful what you're saying that like it takes you to change it. Like that was so fascinating of start giving them compliments and and they'll mirror that. Like it's so amazing to feel like if you're not satisfied in your relationship and your sex life, that the power is solely in you, that you can control it. Like, I think that's such a a really empowering thing. So I love all of those tips. I think those are are amazing for relationships. And, and I totally see how those would translate into sex life and sexuality and, and, and keeping that desire strong. So while we're on the subject, I would love to talk to you about having that conversation with your partner. We actually got so many questions of people being like, how do I talk about sex with my partner? So before we even get into the tips, because I I know you have so many and people need your tips. (laughs) It's so interesting to me that it's, it's taken so personally, like there's ego involved in it. You know, like someone saying to their partner, I wish you would take me on dates more that's a much easier conversation than I wish you would do X, Y, Z in the bedroom more. And, you know, when you think about it, like those, it should just be the same. It should be like, I want something a little bit different and we're communicating and that's good. But for some reason with sex, there's like 
an ego involved where we're, it feels like a blow to our self-esteem. If we're being told, can you do something differently? We're thinking of it like, oh, that means that we're not good in bed or we're not enough. Or like, it's just so interesting that it's such a, I don't know if like being taken personally is the right phrase, but, but what are your thoughts on that? I'm like, why is it such a delicate conversation? And it's, you know, it feels different than asking about something, asking for help with chores, asking for something else. It's a different feeling. Like, why is there that personal, almost like ego related delicacy that we need to have when discussing sex with our partner? Well, you just nailed it, right? It's an internal experience that blame or shame or comparative, what we hear when we get a criticism is a comparative, it's internalized. And we know that shame, you know, that that feeling of I'm not enough, that's how it manifests versus the chores. Why don't you take me on a date? That's a thing. That's a thing out here. It's externalized. So when we feel like we aren't good at something, oh my gosh, does that hurt? And our egos are tied to our sexuality because again, back to where you and I started, sex and self aren't dualistic. It's literally a part of who we are right? But music for some people is going to be a part of who they are, or writing is going to be a part or a sport. And we aren't just born being good at it. So with sexuality too, we really have to learn. And with every new partner, with every new stage of life, we relearn our sexuality. There's going to be some components that stay probably, but we re- we relearn, relearn, relearn. That's really an interesting way to look at it. And you kind of just you saying that relearning, it made me think too, like, I wonder how much of that is, again, kind of going back to like younger experiences, all of us, when we were in that age where you start experimenting and you start being interested in sex and like so young, I remember there being such a focus on, are you good? Are you bad? Like there's a lot of performance anxiety, I think for men and women, like there's this, you know, expectation for men, like you have to last a certain amount of time and like all these pressures that's so heightened when you're young and you are trying to be impressive to the partner you're with. Like it's so much. So I wonder if some of that is like that inner child healing. I wonder if that plays into it too. It does. Absolutely. And oh my gosh, I hear people in their forties, fifties, and sixties saying, oh, Josie, I just had a consult today and the the man said to me, I'm not good at oral sex. So there it is. And he is in his 60s. Wow. So we do, we carry these stories because it feels like such a personal reflection of us. And yes, I want everyone to feel like they're good at it and feel empowered. But again, what's good oral sex with one person, your next partner might say, why the hell are you doing that? I like it this way. So we just, we have to stay curious and we have to be flexible. And that process of reciprocity with our partners is is one of the key foundations of good sex, curiosity, reciprocity. How do you address having this conversation with a partner, whether it is like a, a totally new partner and you just feel uncomfortable being so vulnerable with someone you don't know very well, or whether it's someone, you know, you've been with for a long time and you're just sort of in the rut of things, you don't want to hurt their feelings. What are some tips and ways that you help two people work together to communicate about sex and how they can improve their sexual relationship? 
Thank you for pointing out kind of the different stages of relationship. And I'm just going to take 30 seconds to say something there. Um, This idea of sharing and being vulnerable on the first, second, or third date, I'm all for it as long as there is, again, this word reciprocity. Because there's been so many times when a person has been vulnerable and shared what they're into, what they like, and it's not reflected back to them. And then they're left the next day with so much anxiety or that vulnerability hangover where they're like, I wish I didn't do that. And then they're totally dysregulated for a day, for a week. So make sure when you're at that point of vulnerability and sharing, and we all have to step a little outside of our comfort zone, but I just want people to receive back what they're giving so generously. I love that. That's so important. Yeah. The second piece. So if you've been with someone for 10 years and you're like, wow, our sex life needs a little bit of a reboot. Again, I would start, so you can lead with that question. What, how do you think our sex life is? What's your favorite part of our sex life? Or you could say my favorite part of our sex life is, and you know what? I was watching that movie the other night and it really got me turned on when I saw them do X, Y, Z or I read an article and I'm really curious about non-monogamy. What do you think of that? So you're approaching it again from curiosity. Your partner doesn't need to get defensive. And this leads to the bigger question of figuring out your sexual template. So that's my word. Sexual template is my word for figuring out what turns you on and what you find sexy. So desire, the psychological process of wanting, that's what turns us on. Arousal is the physiological process of wanting. That's what we find sexy. That's what really gets us going. And I feel like for so many of us, women in particular, we've never taken the time to ask ourselves those really important questions. Yeah, that's so true. Like how often are you really sitting down thinking about like, what does turn me on? Like, what is that thing? Like that's, and that's so powerful. I'm sure to just like, first of all, again, starting with just yourself of being honest with yourself, because it's probably, I mean, it's hard to have a conversation with someone else on how you can improve your sex life if you yourself don't know what that looks like for you alone as a human being. So I think that's an amazing, really, really important place to start. I kind of have like a bit of a side tangent or just like side question that I wasn't going to ask, but now I'm so curious your thoughts. What's your thoughts or stance on porn? And I'm sure it's very complicated and a lot, but I've just heard so many different opinions on, you know, porn can be a good way to explore your sexuality to it's, you know, creating unrealistic expectations. And then there's a lot of complications with like, how is, is porn showcasing women? And is that an empowering thing or is it not? So what are your thoughts overall on porn? I'm sure that there is, you know, a lot there, but, um, and also if there are recommendations of people listening that are either interested in porn or enjoy porn and how they can enjoy it in a way that's most beneficial for them. Oh, this is a big question. So I'm just going to give you my quick two cents. It is not black and white. It's just hard to qualify it that way. And I feel like porn gets demonized or people get pathologized for watching porn. And we really, again, we have to be open to everyone's experience. Porn is going to be problematic for some people. For most people, it is not. 
There is some porn that depicts women and individuals horribly. There is a lot of porn that does not. So there's a whole ethical porn or feminist porn movement. Now, the thing is for these to watch this porn, you usually have to, there's a, it's a subscription based because their performers are treated well. They have healthcare. There's making sure that there's consent every step in the way. There's usually um, storylines. So I'm talking about women now. So it's not just sex. There's beautiful stories storylines and the lighting is beautiful and you'll see all shapes of body types, usually for uh, subscription-based, but you can also find porn for women on the larger porn platforms, YouPorn, Pornhub, things like that, that we know your computer won't get a virus. You're probably not going to find anything that's too unethical or illegal because those porn sites are being checked all the time. The idea of porn addiction, sex addiction is not one I'm in favor of. Most sex therapists are going to be a big no to that because, again, it's really pathologizing bad behavior. And I'm doing that in quotes. Um, we're trying to tell people how much they should watch, what they should watch. And if people come to me and they're like, hey, porn is a huge problem, of course I'm going to treat it. But we call it compulsivity or we call it problematic sexual behavior. And we don't go with an abstinence model. We we go with models that are really holistic. Look at backing down. How much porn do you think is good for you? If you don't think any is good at all, that's fine. But what else can you do to really fulfill your sexual needs and erotic needs? Hmm. Okay. That's super, super interesting. I love that. I mean, obviously a subscription base is super important, making sure that, you know, the participants are getting paid for their work and that it's consensual and all of those things. So those are some good tips on like how to, how to just come at it from an ethical place. So when a site constitutes something as like porn for women, mm-hmm. what does that mean? Like how is porn for women quotes different from porn period. Like, I feel like it's like, it's not like porn for men and porn for women. It's like porn and then porn for women. So like, what is constituting that as porn for women? It's unfortunate in some ways that that's what it's called, but I'm just telling your, your listeners, like, that's where they're going to want to look because again, there's going to be more of a storyline. Um, you're going to see all shapes and sizes of bodies. It's probably going to look prettier. And there's a ton of male body people who appreciate that kind of porn. And there's a lot of female body people who like more hardcore porn. So it is an, a generalization for sure. But again, I think it just comes down to ethics and consent. And I hear those questions more from women typically than I do for men, but I just pause because man, I have a lot of men in my practice right now who are, who say, I don't feel good just looking at mainstream porn anymore. How can I make sure that this is ethical? Wow. That's awesome. That's great to hear. And that is really interesting. Like even just those, like it has a storyline, it's maybe like a little more like just visually appealing. It just, it's really interesting that a lot of women seek that. Like, I wonder if there's just a little bit more emotion to it. And I, and maybe we will be moving more towards that as society where more and more people will like the storyline, like the emotion, like the, you know, visual beauty of it and want a diverse visual representation of them as people. Like, I, I just think that that's interesting that that's like still considered like porn for women, but you're right. Like, I think that that's where a lot of people should go. And it's nice to have that differentiated from maybe like the mainstream porn where it is something that a lot of people wouldn't connect with. So it's nice to have that space, but you know, it's just a, just a side thought. I just think that's interesting that it's like 
there's more of a storyline and it's visually appealing and that those things are important to traditionally women. Right. And I forgot. And it's going to be less just penis and vagina because less than 75% of women can orgasm from penetration alone. So it's going to be more about clitoral stimulation, breast play, sensuality, overall massage. It's not just P and B. Fascinating. Okay. Which I think is a good just overall tip for anyone listening. Maybe this is the time (laughs) you like turn it up. If your boyfriend happens to be nearby, your husband, your partner, turning this part up a little bit, it's about obviously, which I think we all know is that like a female orgasm has a lot more to do with more than just the insertion. I guess, right. for lack of a better word, but <laughs> that, that um, doesn't do much for most women. They're like, okay, okay it's in there. Now what? Yeah, <laughs> now what? <laughs> so funny. Okay, so actually speaking of kind of like maybe a little more basics, I actually really do want to go back to the basics with you because again, going back to that sex education that a lot of us did not receive and and, and many of us even as adults are kind of like moving through trying to gather this information from movies, from books, from friends, from romantic partners. And so I just want to kind of like go to the very basics and ask your thoughts and for you to define these very basic things. So first of all, like what really is libido? What does that mean? Man, that's such a big question. So how we want to define it is sex drive, that it's a sex drive. And again, it's something external from us that if we do this and this and this, we're going to be able to grab this sex drive, grab this libido, harness it and ride it to our next great sexual experience. Sex drive really comes back to this idea of desire, which then goes back to Eros, life force, vitality, vivacity, which is where you and I started. Most people, especially female body people, aren't just going to be able to grab a ton of libido out of the sky if they are not taking care of themselves, if they're not eating well, if they're not getting enough sleep, if they're super stressed, if there's a lot going on in their life. Now, some have more access to libido than others because they prioritized it. And I think that's what I would love for listeners to hear. For most of us, again, especially those of us, you know, out of those teenage years where the hormones are flying around, libido is not just going to fall out of the sky. We really have to prioritize it. We have to develop our self-pleasure protocol. We have to start taking our pleasure into our own hands. Dr. Emily Morse tagged this line, the more sex you have, the more sex you want. Sex begets sex. That is absolutely true. So if you are looking for more libido, start having sex with yourself. And I promise you will see an uptick in it if you are not stressed and if there aren't a lot of external factors that are impacting your health, uh, physical and emotional. That's really interesting. Like, I love that, like the sex brings more sex. Like it, it's, it you have to like spark, it's almost like sparking the fire and then it's the fire increases So that's a really interesting way to think of it. So I know that you said there's like the physical and emotional, like I know like stress plays into it, right? Like that can harm it if you're emotionally stressed or emotionally detached. Then there's also physical factors like, you know, even like throughout female cycle, a reproductive cycle, the libido can change. So if someone is experiencing low libido is trying, you know, to go back to their own like self-pleasure and start with that practice and it's still something feels off where should they go? 
Yeah. So best practice is definitely go to your primary care physician or your OBGYN and start talking about this. So a full blood panel would be great. This idea of testing hormones. And again, I'm not that kind of doctor. Some doctors are like, yeah, let's test your home hormones. Other doctors say it totally depends on the time of month when we test your hormones because your hormones are going to fluctuate you know, throughout the month. So some say yes to that. Some say no. Some say, you know, more testosterone can help with libido. That's true, but that also comes with side effects. So short answer to your question is certainly go to your primary care physician or your OBGYN to rule out any medical concerns that might be happening there. If that's still, if you're like, I'm great, you know, clean build of health, then I would want to look at your emotional health. Is there anxiety? Is there depression? Is there relational stress, familial stress, work stress? These, we can't put these all in singular boxes. So they all impact our overall health. Maybe figuring out where is the highest point of stress, anxiety, or depression for you and focusing on that area, finding a qualified mental health person who talks about that. Or if it's not that, certainly finding a sex therapist. Those are such great tips. Like we should be taking our lower libido as a sign to seek something out, not just like, that's a bummer. That's just the way it is. Like it's, it's again, like the, a vital sign, like it's telling your, you something's going on, whether it's emotional or physical. So I love that advice. Okay. Next basic question, back to the basics, which are, it's always more complicated too, because there's so much to these answers. What is an orgasm and how many kinds are there really? Oh my gosh. Oh, big question. And I'm just going to say, I can't answer the whole list of how many kinds there are because I swear someone finds a new kind every single day. So but what I can talk about is the research. Um, and I think most of your listeners are going to be female bodied. So I'm going to yes. go there first. So yes. let's go back to the clitoris. Up until last year, we thought the clitoris had 4,000 nerve fibers. Turns out that research was done on cattle in the 1970s, and the clitoris actually has closer to 10,000 nerve fibers. So this is no two way. times more than the head of the <gasps> penis. So most of us think of the clitoris as this little nub that we can see right above the labia, this little nub. The clitoris is actually shaped like a wishbone. And if, if we had video, I would show you my little diagram, but it's shaped like a wishbone. So it has legs. Those legs are inside our pelvic floor. So what we thought of previously as vaginal orgasms are most likely clitoral orgasms. Wow. But people can have orgasms from nipple stimulation. People can have orgasms from anal stimulation, from having their feet rubbed. People can have orgasms from no physical stimulation by just thinking about something sexy. We call those spontaneous orgasms. Oh my God, that's fascinating. So there's basically like countless ways to orgasm, basically. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. For female body people, most of the time they're going to come from the clitoris, but certainly not always. And I'm hoping there's other listeners out there. I was one of the lucky few that I got to have spontaneous orgasms when I was pregnant just because my body was so full of hormones. So you will just be asleep and you'll be like, oh my gosh, I didn't even know I was thinking about something sexy, but there that is. What a nice way to wake up. Well, that sounds like a great way to wake up. <laughs> oh, that's so interesting. Okay. And this again might sound weird, but I really do want to go back to like basic, basic, basic for people. It feels weird because I think, 
you know, we have this idea that men have a very obvious way that, that they can tell that they have orgasm, right? For women, how do you know that you orgasm? And this might sound weird, but like, I, I've actually heard of a lot of women who are like, I've never orgasmed, but it's because it, they may have maybe orgasmed with a nipple stimulated orgasm. So they weren't thinking, oh, that's what an orgasm is because we have this very clear idea of that's what it looks like. And we see on movies, a woman's doing a certain thing. And it's, you know, when uh, her partner's doing X, Y, Z to her, it's not all these ranges of things. So like, can you define what it is to actually orgasm and how you know that you have experienced one, which again, I know sounds like a weird question, but I would just love your your answer and, and your insight into that. Sure. And it's not weird. I'm going to say, mm, gosh, probably 20 times a year, a, a woman will reach out to me and so gingerly and delicately ask, um, hey, I don't think I've had an orgasm or, hey, I felt this. Is this an orgasm? I don't know if I've had one. It is a great question and it deserves a good answer. So there is a physiological response that most women feel when they orgasm, and that's a contraction of the pelvic floor. So it will be a squeezing and releasing of the pelvic floor muscles pretty quickly. So you'll feel contractions. You'll feel a lot of sensation around your genitals typically. However, people talk about full body orgasms, which is more described as like a wave through the whole body of just tingling and lightness and just this great feeling. But there's not, like you said before, there's not one kind of orgasm. They're not all huge. So there might be these small little orgasms. That's great. Or there might be these full, totally big full body orgasms, which are wonderful too, but you're usually going to feel some contraction in the pelvic floor in some sense of like tingling or tightness throughout the body. I love that definition of it. Another like term that I think is being discussed a lot and thrown around a lot is this idea of like an orgasm gap, like that there's a difference between the amount that men and women are orgasming, which obviously is a very big generalization and it's not true for every person. But overall, that's a, um, I think, an experience that happens often is that men are more likely to orgasm than women. And there's been studies on that. And so I'm just interested in your thoughts on why is that and how do we fix it? Oh, back to where we started our conversation because we're not talking about female pleasure. You know, men, it's like you said, it's more visible. Um, their penis is very sensitive. But most men, most penis havers have not been taught what really gets a woman off. And that's clitoral stimulation. It is not penetration. So that orgasm gap talks about when a female body person and a male body person are together, 85, 88% of the time, he's going to have an orgasm less than 30% of the time. She is going to have one if they're just doing penetration alone. So it's because that's the idea of like sex is that it's penetration. Yeah. Heteronormative sex, you know, there's penetration involved. So there's less of a gap with gay people. There's less of a gap with queer people. There's less of a gap with lesbian identified people because it's not just about penis and vagina. Okay. So that's really interesting. So if, if someone's listening, who's like a hundred percent, I get that. Like, how do they go about discussing with their partner that there's that they want more. I know that's again, going back to the conversation, but is there a way for this specific instance to be like, in like before penetration or during penetration do X, Y, Z, or like, is there a way to discuss how to move beyond just the penetrative sex into that clitoral stimulation? 
Yeah. Yeah. So you say to them, Hey, how about if we go into the outer course? Right. The outer course. I love that. So we want to call it foreplay and that's fine, but it kind of connotes that anything that comes before penis and vagina is for, and that penis and vagina is the death is the destination, the end all be all for so many women. It is not. So we just talk about this idea of outer course. And yes, that the average woman needs about 20 minutes to reach full arousal. The average man, much less than that. So you're going to prioritize kissing, if that's what you like, touching, playing around with your fingers, oral sex, anything and everything that can come before penis and vagina, just to get most female body people up and like ready for that, that experience of having an orgasm we often talk about foreplay as if it's everything except the penetration and the penetration is like the main event. Like that's the way that I've definitely heard it discussed. And so I, I think that's so interesting of reframing that it's all equal. It's It's all all part of it. It's all sex. It's all, it actually, I don't know if you've seen the holiday, but I love that movie, but it makes me think of the quote when Cameron Diaz is like, I think when Jude Law is like, what do you think of foreplay? And she's like, I think it's overrated. And it's, I think that there's this idea for women of like, you just get right to the penetration. And like, that's what you see in movies a lot is it's just right to the penetration. And so I just, I think that that reframe is actually so important. There's no, even like the, the foreplay is not the lead up to the main event. It's like, it's all sex and it's all important and it's all part of your pleasure. So I love that reframe. I think that's so important. So outside of the bedroom, like, you know, looking ahead to just like going through your life every single day, are there any tips that you have to like live more orgasmically, like things that we can do outside of the bedroom to increase our pleasure inside of the bedroom? Like maybe it's like foods to eat or mindsets or rituals or practices or anything you recommend to just kind of like have a more pleasurable life that will translate into the bedroom, but it's not necessarily you know, going to the couch by ourselves and having that touching time, like anything that's outside of that. Absolutely. And I talked about um, the sexual template before and the, the protocol that I've developed around that, which is really simple. And it's really just relying on your five senses once a day. So going out in the world or staying at home, looking at what am I drawn to by smell? What am I drawn to by sight? What kind of foods do I love to eat? So that we're just starting to focus. What do I like to hear? on all of the senses, which can translate pretty easily to desire and arousal. So again, it's not looking through primarily just sexual lens because that can be really hard for some people to just be like, okay, I'm going to go straight to the sex, especially for survivors of any kind of sexual trauma. You want a gentle on-ramp to let's just see what makes you feel good. What gets your juices flowing? What are you interested in moving towards more? What kind of music? What kind of touch? what kind of foods, what, you know, what things that you like to look at just to like start tapping into that energy for yourself. And the other question I like is when do you feel most in your body? Wow. Wow. That's a powerful question. Yeah. I love that. I love that idea of just like in general, having more pleasure in life, whether it's like this food tastes so good and like I, it smells good and it tastes like, and you're just so present and experiencing that pleasure in a totally different way. That's that we don't necessarily see a sexual pleasure. I think that's probably so powerful. And I love that idea of just like living more 
pleasurably and asking yourself, when am I most in my body? Like those are such cool ways to check in with yourself and ways to like change the way that you're living on a regular basis that I think totally can be very empowering. And I totally see how that translates into your sexuality. And so I I love those. I think those are such phenomenal tips. We had some really interesting audience questions come in for you and you already have addressed a lot. So I just have a couple interesting questions that I would love to ask from our audience. So first question being, someone asked, what do I do when sexual desire isn't matched in a long-term relationship or marriage? Like one partner has a high sex drive and one partner has a low sex drive. So clinically, we call this a desire discrepancy. And that's going to be what sex therapists treat so much of the time when they're seeing couples is this idea of a desire discrepancy. So what you're doing there is you're really trying to, again, you're going to go back to the basics. What is partner A like? What is partner B like? Have they really figured that out for themselves and how do they know how to ask for it? Or do they know how to ask for it from each other? And then I love the word collaboration. I like that so much better than compromise because most couples sit down with me and they're like, well, she wants this and she wants this and I'm going to have to give up what I want. And it's this idea of compromises, give up, give up, give up. So I like the idea of collaboration and how can we really create the sex life that we both love, that's co-created, that you're getting what you need and I get what I need. And I know that sounds like roses and it's not always that perfect, but I know when we're really asking those important questions, we can get the couple much closer together than where they started. And it's interesting because the desire discrepancy usually shows up because the frequency is off. One person is like, I want more sex. And the question we ask there is, is it sex worth wanting? Mm, Interesting. No one wants sex that's not good. Why would someone want to have more sex if it's not good? It's like saying, here's a horrible hamburger. Do you want another? No, thank you. I'm going to (laughs) go choose something else, right? Yeah, yeah. So how, if we help create a better sex life, which is looking at the quality of sex, not the quantity of the sex, the quantity almost naturally improves. Whoa, that kind of like was a mind blow for me because that's so true of like, when you are talking about if some, if one partner is like, I want more sex, the conversation most often is focused around like that means quantity, but that's such an amazing point that if you focus on the quality and how can we improve the quality for both of us and collaborate to discuss how we get the sex life that we want, then the quantity itself will naturally increase because the quality is there. That's actually such a, I've never heard of it talked about that way. That's so interesting. Okay. Next question. Okay. I'll just going to ask, cause I'm just so curious what you would say, but somebody asked, how should I approach the topic of still being a virgin well into adulthood? So I'm assuming that this means like twenties, thirties, forties, I don't know, whatever age where you feel like it's maybe less common to still be a virgin. And I also really hate the word virgin, not to shame whoever put this question in, but I, it just, it, that word like gives me such a like icky feeling, like it just feels so outdated. And so I just, I want your opinion on all of that. How do you, I guess, I'm I'm assuming that this person means, you know, in in a romantic dating or maybe even sexual relationship discussing that that's a part of their, their, what they claim is their identity of, again, I'm guessing not having 
that intercourse kind of sex is what I'm guessing, or however you interpret that. I'm trying to interpret it as a non-expert. So you, you interpret what that question means to you and, and how someone can approach that. Well, I'm just so glad that you went out there and said that word makes me like want to like shake because um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining all of us, all of us here in this collective world of sex positivity. The word virgin has no place in this world of sex positivity. Virginity is a religious construct that translated into a social construct that I feel like really disempowers women on a host of levels. It's such a problematic word. And okay, um, a little plug here. So every week I shoot quickies for Dr. Holly, which is a one minute quick tip. It's on my Instagram. And my question this week that I shot, um, someone asked, what's the deal with born again virgins or how do born again virgins work? And my answer was born again virgins don't work because virginity is a religious and cultural construct. So I'm going to give you a few words here and then answer that question. So the words I like to use are sexual debut or first sexual experience, right? Love that. And um, I just want to say another shout out for survivors. A lot of time, first sexual experience is not consensual. So in my world, I do not count a first sexual experience that was not consensual. Our sexual debut must be consensual. That's the one that counts and every human being gets to decide what their sexual debut looks like. Yes, yes, that's so powerful. So this this person that wrote into you, um, they are not alone. Um, many people don't have their first experience until well into their 20s, 30s, or 40s. That's okay. So again, do you remember when we talked about sharing and reciprocity with vulnerability? So I think her question was, how does she, you know, how is, how are they feeling about this with themselves and how do they tell a prospective partner? You're going to want to wait until you know that vulnerability is safe. And it is something to be certainly not ashamed of. You've taken your time for a reason. And I certainly appreciate that about you, how far you've come. I don't know your story, but there is a reason why you've waited this long. And I really want you to give yourself a pat on the back about that or appreciate yourself for that. If you have a trauma history, of course, that's going to impact it. And this would be a logical response to that. So whatever your story is, your body has been trying to keep you safe. Your mind has been trying to keep you safe. This is not something that you're going to power through or push over. So really wait until you decide it's the right time for you. Mm, I love that. That's so helpful and also very empowering. And it's like, it's so interesting because kind of even going back to what we're saying about it's not foreplay and the penetration is the sex, it's all sex. That's what makes one of the many things that makes this concept of virginity very confusing at best and damaging at, at true face value because, you know, first sexual experience, like that probably means different things for everybody, right? Like that could be the first kiss. That could be the first touch. That could be the first time that you were alone and that you touch yourself and that you experience that pleasure. And so it's, it probably is such an individual basis that it's hard to define yourself against these measures of like virginity means penetration. And as we've discussed, sex is not just penetration. It's a thousand different things. So, so it's, just as another kind of piece of this that that I think connecting what you said before that you know it's always individual for everybody so the first sexual experience is something that you define it's not something that like society said when you have penetration is when this thing happens to you that you 
are were virgin and are like it just it's so confusing to me like it's just so wild that we ever defined ourselves against that culturally defined moment like i it just it's so confusing it's so weird <laughs> that's just my little it side is. tangent yeah no it's great and there's going to be plenty of people out there who decide they never want to have penetration so are they virgins this word uh, their whole life no come on right. you get to define what sex is for you all sex is good sex as long as it's consensual and pleasurable. You define it for yourself. Love it. Love it. Bottom line, mic drop. That's it. I love it. <laughs> okay, Dr. Holly, we have just a few rapid fire questions to wrap up. Um, first one, your go-to sex position for women to reach orgasm. I'm sure again, this like varies by person, but I'm curious if there's any go-tos. Yes. Yes. So for sure on top, some people call this cowgirl. So, uh, and that is because most of the time your clitoris is getting contact with your partner's belly or pubic region. So any position that promotes clitoral pleasure or stimulation. Love it. Okay. Your favorite toy lube or any product to bring into the bedroom? Head on over to dameproducts.com. They are made by women, engineered by women. The company is run by women. So dameproducts.com. I'm on their clinical board of directors, so full transparency. But oh my gosh, it is a company that I believe in. All their products are safe, non-toxic, something for everybody. Oh my God, I love it. D-A-M-E, Dame Products? Yeah. Okay. Yep. Oh my God. Amazing. That sounds so great. Okay. And then last question, leave our audience with a book, documentary, other resource that you recommend to clients looking to boost their pleasure or better their sex life. Okay. Oh my gosh. Um, for those watching, I have these two huge shelves of books behind me. You just, you just <laughs> yeah. asked me to pick my favorite child. What in the world is going on here? <laughs> Um, oh, becoming clitorate. Dr. Lori Mintz is a great one for women. Uh, Cindy Darnell does great work. I'm going to give myself a little plug. I wrote reclaiming pleasure last week for survivors of sexual trauma who are reclaiming their, their sexual selves. I'm going to give another shout out to modern sex therapy institutes. Um, I am their associate director. We train sex therapists. They have a great website with a ton of resources. So you're going to want to go there. Uh, my website has a lot of resources. Where else? Dr. Justin Lay Miller, if you're interested in fantasies, Doug Braun Harvey for problematic sexual behavior, Dr. Ian Kerner, she counts first, and the wonderful, amazing Dr. Esther Perel or Esther Perel. Um, she wrote Mating in Captivity and really looks at the relational side of things. Oh my God, you just gave so many phenomenal <laughs> resources. I'm like, yes, take, taking notes, writing yeah. it down looking at it later. Those are so awesome. I love that because I, I, obviously this is a long journey, a lifelong journey is understanding your sexuality and looking into your sexuality. So I actually love that long list of resources that people can go to because I, I'm sure that this was so helpful for people. Like we fit what we could into an hour for sure. Like more than I even expected. You have so many good tips, but like, it's such a long process. So I think that's so important to just give people like, here's the, you know, the next steps, if you want to continue looking into your sexuality and learning about it. Um, so I love all of those. I cannot wait to look into them. I actually have one more rapid fire that I just thought of just because I'm curious. What is your, like, is there a sex scene in movies or films that you think was done a helpful way instead of a like inaccurate or damaging way? Any like movie or TV show that you think like shows sex 
in a way that's helpful and more realistic than what we know of as like, you know, what sex looks like on movies. Yeah. There's a lot, but you know what a ton of women say to me is the Outlander series with Jamie and Claire, man, their sex scenes are hot because she is empowered and yeah, she just, I'm not going to give too much away, but the Outlander series, it's a series of books that was made into a television series. So Outlander, that's a great one. Oh, there's so many. And again, it depends on your sexual template. What kind of sex do you want? Some women are going to like rough sex. So they're going to go in that way. Some women are going to want more sensuality. So they'll go that way. But yeah, check out Outlander. Outlander. Okay. Fascinating. Now I have to go watch it for the sex scenes. That sounds awesome. What about now? I'm just, again, now this is a whole side tangent, but do you have thoughts on like the whole, like, did you hear about the don't worry darling, where it was supposed to be this like very empowering thing that cause she was getting oral sex and that's not shown often. What are your thoughts on that? Cause there was, there was a lot of talk about it. There was, and I have not watched that one yet. So I don't want to say too much, but I think, um, I think the controversy was kind of that it was manipulative and coercive, like the, the male character. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Right. So, I mean, sex, again, it's this big picture. And when we're having sex with another person, it's not just the act. There's a relationship there. So we have to make sure that that is solid and we're getting from it what we want, whether it's a one night stand or 50 years of marriage. Both people have to be on the same page. And I think I heard in that they weren't exactly on the same page. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, well, not to go again on a whole side tangent with you, because I could talk to you forever about this, but it's, it, it, I thought it was really interesting because, you know, before the movie came out, the director and everybody involved was like, yeah, it's, it's a really empowering scene because it's a female receiving oral sex and that doesn't happen a lot, which is so true. That's awesome. But then because of the, yeah, not to have any spoiler for people out there, but, but that again, it's just more interesting of like for us to look into how are we showing true female sexuality on the screen and how can we bring more diversity to that. Again, like people are going to be turned on by different things. And how can we be more aware of showing sex in a way that's helpful for people and feels realistic to women instead of what it's been in the past. So bottom line, but I I love your stance on all of that. That's so interesting. Polly, thank you so, so much for all of your expertise and for joining us. It was such a pleasure, pun intended. It was so great to talk to you and I so enjoyed it. Um, Thank you so much. And where can everybody find you, your social handles? Where can they find your book? Give us everything about you. Yes, yes, yes. I'm going to say that. And also um, when you send me the graphic and I get this posted on my Instagram, I will list those resources, all of those books that I yes, thank you. tag all of my wonderful colleagues, tag Modern Sex Therapy Training Institute, if you're interested in more kind of just hearing more and learning more about sex therapy. So you can find me on Instagram and Facebook. It's just at Dr. Holly Richmond. So it's a dr. H-O-L-L-Y-R-I-C-H-M-O-N-D. And my website is drhollyrichmond.com. Amazing. Thank you so much, Dr. Holly. Thank you. Have a great day. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 